Today, this is the, the finale. It's the last one in the series that we're doing in The People of God and the Power of God, this series in the life of Elisha. If you're new to Kings, you're coming in right at the end, but we'll be going on a new topic in the new year. Um, and what we're uh, talking about today is this, that God is always enough and his promise can always be trusted. And we're going to find this message in this passage of scripture we're reading from 2 Kings 13, verses 10 to 20. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, son of Jehoaz, clearly the J's were very popular in the baby books in those days, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He continued in them. As for the other events of the reign of Jehoash, all he did and his achievements, including his war against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Jehoash rested with his ancestors, and Jeroboam succeeded him on the throne. Jehoash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now Elisha had been suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows. And he did so. Take the bow in your hands. He said to the king of Israel, when he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. Then he said, take the arrows, and the king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. Elisha died and was buried. So today I want to take this theme that God is always enough. And we're going to see a negative example of a king of Israel who didn't think God was enough for him. And you, you see many positive examples of Scripture. In fact, the best king of Israel that you come across in the Old Testament is a king called David. And he famously wrote Psalm 23 that you've probably heard, which says, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. And what he was saying is this, that if I follow God, there's nothing that life has that is more important and that I can enjoy and, and know better than him and his presence in my life. In fact, one person put it this way. They said, the person who has God plus everything doesn't have anything more than the person who has God alone. And whether you're wealthy or poor, the truth is this. If you have God in your life, you're the richest person on the planet. And we're looking at this negative example today of somebody who didn't make God their everything. And we see where things went wrong for them. And this person is a king called Jehoash. And what you find is that when you don't make God your everything, you end up giving your life to all the wrong stuff. I wonder if you could imagine your life in a single tweet. I know we've got some youth here today. I know there's no youth meeting for you today. I want you to imagine the end of your life. If somebody's to, to make a tweet about you in 140 characters to summarize your life, what would it be? 
What would it say? What would be the most overarching important thing that somebody would say about you? Because this is what they said about King Jehoash. And we're told in the, uh, the later scripture that we just read that the man who compiled two kings for us, he said, I've checked all the annals of the kings of Israel. He said, a big dusty volume up on the shelves of Israel's history. He said, I've checked through all of that. And he said, and I can summarize this king in two sentences. And this is his tweet. He says, Jehoash reigned 16 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebal. What a damning statement for somebody to make about your life. He reigned 16 years. That's a long time. It's longer than Churchill ruled for. It's longer than Alexander the Great. It's longer than Nelson Mandela. It's longer than uh, Margaret Thatcher or Tony Blair. It's longer than many political leaders who we would count of having influenced or left an imprint, either positive or negative, on the world. And yet in 16 years, the sum total of his life was this. From this writer's perspective, he was just another evil king who just did evil stuff in the eyes of the Lord. I want you to think for a moment about your life and what's really important. Because one day, somebody will be thinking about your life and think, what was their contribution? What, what was the thing about them? And there are so many things. If I was to say to you, are you doing anything important this week? You'd probably have a list as long as your, long as your arm of things you've got to do this week, right? You've got to go to work for a start. You've got to study to get a degree. You've got to earn money to pay for the house, to pay the mortgage. And, and you, you've got to invest in your family. You've got to spend time with your wife or spouse or whoever that is. And there are all sorts of important things. And this king did some important things with a small eye. But he missed the important things with a big eye. And you and I can never afford to miss the most important things in our life. Here's the most important thing you're being challenged about today. How do you relate to God and how do you receive his word? They're the two most important questions you will ever answer. Because our lives come and go in just a few moments. In fact, Psalm 103, it says, The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like the flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. Life is short, therefore make the most of your life. I don't know if you've ever read the book of James in the New Testament. And uh, I love the book of James. It always strikes me, whenever I turn to the book of James, I always think it's a bit like going out for a drink with a friend who, who, who says to you, they sort of get to you on the phone and say, hey Dan, could we meet up and just talk? I've got something I need to talk to you about. And uh, they sort of then hit you, you sit down and you're having the chit-chat and they say, right, First thing, I just want to point out a major character issue in your life, Dan. <laughs> and they sort of really hit you broadside. And you're, you're sort of reeling from it. And, uh, and, and you think, okay, well, that's, that's great. Thanks for just being honest with me and just telling me the truth about my life. And just as you're quietly thinking and repenting, then James kind of uh, gets his bit of paper out and he says, and I've got 25 more things I want to talk to you about as well. <laughs> James is like that. He just goes through one thing after another. It, it, lots of wisdom in there. Anyway, this is one of the things he says in James 4, verse 14. After you're reeling from many other issues he's saying, he says, What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And his conclusion is, therefore, do the right stuff with your life. 
This king wasted his life chasing idols. How do we know that? He didn't make God his center. God wasn't enough for him because it tells us in verse 11 that he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam. The sins of Jeroboam was basically a sin of idolatry. In fact, you read the story of Jeroboam in 1 Kings chapter 11, and he was, he was the king who split Israel down the middle. And uh, 10 of the tribes went to form new Israel, and two of the tribes stayed to be Judah. And he, he sort of led them in, into that, that division. And those northern, king, those northern tribes, that 10 tribes of the north of Israel, they were geographically separated from the cultural and worship capital which was Jerusalem, where the temple was, where God had ordained that worship and sacrifice should be offered to him at the temple. So this is what Jeroboam did. He gathered those ten tribe leaders and he says, you know what, now that we're doing our own thing, we're not going to traipse down to Jerusalem anymore to worship. You see, the thing is, when, when you begin to depart from God's word a little bit, you usually end up going the whole hog. And Jeroboam goes the whole hog. He says, we're not going to traipse down to worship in Jerusalem anymore, we're going to do it here. And he says, and we're going to do it here with these two golden calves in Bethel and in Dan. Unfortunate name. <laughs> and he says, this is where we're going to worship from now on. These are the gods we're going to worship. Golden calves. It was a long way from what God had planned. Now, in Jeroboam's day, you, you might have liked what he was doing. You, you could have called him a progressive in some ways. He was doing something more local, more in fitting with local culture and local gods. People might have commended him and said, well done, Jeroboam. Good for you. And if he, he was a progressive, then every king since him, between then and the one we could look at today, Jehoash, we would describe them as traditionalists because they just followed the same thing again and again and again. That northern kingdom of ten tribes never had a king that followed God and repented of idolatry. And you read that same phrase that we read today 12 times in the book of 2 Kings. That same phrase, that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam. That is, they just said, you know what? Our father did it and our grandfather did it. And his great-great-grandfather did it. This is the way they worship God. This is how we're going to do it from now on. They, they, didn't, they didn't dare change it. It's a funny thing, isn't it? I think we, in our sort of world today, this sort of pluralistic world with many sort of different worldviews, often people use that term worldview as almost being a, an important thing in and of itself. I've got my worldview, you've got your worldview. And it's almost like, as long as you've got a worldview, that's the important thing. As long as you've got a value system. As long as you've got something that you think is important. And, of course, having a value system doesn't mean anything. To have the right value system, to follow the right things, is what matters. Sometimes we bandy words around, like, traditional or progressive, as if one is better than the other. And of course, neither is better than the other. They're just words. They're meaningless unless, what are you being traditional to? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? What are you changing to? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Kingdom values are what counts. You know, it could be you're here today and 
the thing that's stopping you from following Jesus is this, that you're saying, this just wouldn't wear well in my family. My family never did this sort of thing. My friends wouldn't understand this sort of thing. This doesn't fit with my lifestyle. But the truth is this. God isn't looking to fit in with your value system. He's looking for you to be obedient to him and to follow him. And this is the thing he's calling you. He's calling you to make, make him your all. And the thing you read about God in the Bible is this, that he is a God who in himself is all-sufficient. He's all-powerful. He's deeply satisfied within himself. God didn't need to make the world in order to be happy. God was deeply happy. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Trinity from before the world was made, always has been. And out of that sense of love and adoration and enjoyment of one another, they, they, they created the world. That's important to understand that, that there's never been a lack in the heart of God. There's never been a point where God said, you know, I'm, I'm really unhappy with myself. I'm really unhappy with my existence here. Because that kind of God, if God had a lack in him that was somehow driven or restless or, or, or wanting something different, if he was that kind of God, he would not be able to look at you and say, I can definitely satisfy you. If he can't satisfy himself, but he's a God who's deeply satisfied in himself. In fact, there was a, the first time you, you come across one of the names of God in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 17, it's God appearing to Abraham for a second time. And God's already promised Abraham and Sarah children, and they haven't come, and it's 25 years later, and, and Abraham has gone down the route of trying to have a, uh, a son via his slave girl, Hagar. And after that incident, which didn't really bear any good fruit at all, because perhaps... Abraham is doubting that God could really do it. God appears to him and he says, Abraham, I am El Shaddai is the Hebrew word. It means I'm, I'm God Almighty. I'm God the all-sufficient. I can do this. He comes to him and reassures him of his ability to act. I was reading a great hymn earlier this week. Uh, the, the hymn is Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise, but one of the verses describes God this way. It says, unresting, unhasting, and silence as night, not wanting, nor wasting, thou rulest in might. We blossom and flourish like leaves on a tree. We wither and perish, but naught changeth thee. God is totally secure in who he is. And because he is that God, he can be that God to you. He can satisfy you. He can draw near to you. He can be your sufficiency. He can be enough for you. And what happens is when we don't trust God enough, as this king didn't, you end up flip-flopping between different other idols in your life, things that might offer you some kind of grain of security. And at times you will go to those gods, and other times you might even find yourself coming back to the true God. And this is what happens for this king. He flip-flops his life around between these different idols. And in verse 14 that we read, it says, Now Elisha had been suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. What was his motive for going to see Elisha? Here's Elisha on his deathbed. He could, would have probably appreciated a pastoral visit. And this king comes to him in desperate need. 
He wanted a word from God. And he uses this strange phrase, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. What's he saying? Well, a few verses earlier in this passage that we didn't read, it says that this king's inheritance from his father was this, that his dad had lost so many battles against so many enemies that only 10 chariots in Israel remained and 50 horsemen. And so Jehoash is therefore, he's mourning the fact, he says, I don't have an army left. So he says, Elisha, the chariots and horsemen of Israel, please would you help me? Please would you give me a word? Perhaps he's remembering 2 Kings chapter 6 where Elisha had miraculously made one of his servants see a whole army of fiery chariots and, horse, uh, and horses all around them protecting Israel. He thought, and, and, and I think he's on this page. He's going to Elisha. He says, hey, Elisha, the chariots and horsemen of Israel, please give me a word. Please give me a picture. Please show me that everything's going to be okay. It's a cry for help. It's a king who worships idols, yet is also in a time of need coming to the true God. You could call it quick fix religion. And we must be wary of it. We, um, we were on holiday this summer. We, we, Judy and I have four kids. And uh, we, we've done our best to make them resilient young individuals. You know, you do that as a parent, don't you? And uh, so if they wake up with a tummy ache in the morning on a school day, we smile at them and we get them dressed for school. And we say, you know what? You can have a tummy ache at school as well as at home. <laughs> It doesn't make any difference. And we, and we cheerily help them on their way. Usually cheerily. But, um, but we, we try and, and help them to be that way. And, uh, but it's often harder with the youngest one, isn't it? And our youngest is Ben. He's six years old. He's always the baby in the family. In fact, anybody here the youngest in their family? Yeah, I, I am too. And, and don't you always get referred to as if you're like one? Yeah? And it always surprises me when I kind of see Ben alongside the, the newborn babies at church, and I look at Ben and I think, oh, he's grown a bit, hasn't he? <laughs> he's six. And um, anyway, so, so we go on a, a sort of a holiday in the Alps, and we're sort of walking, sort of Julia's getting us out, marching up, up the hills to, to the top, and, and uh, they're doing pretty well, the kids, to be honest. But Ben, he's six, and his little legs are getting tired, and he's kind of walking around like this, you know. And, and anyway, what inevitably happens is on this one particular walk I'm remembering, he just, he just falls over a lot because he's tired and he's tripping. And, and, uh, and, and every time we stopped, it would be another five minutes to stop the crying, to make him stand up again and say, come on, we're on a mission here, Ben. We're going to get to the top of this thing. And, uh, but Julie had this amazing technique as soon as Ben would start crying, because some of the time he'd have genuinely hurt himself, other times there'd just be nothing to see, really. But, and she would just whip a plaster out of her bag, stick it on, and off we would go. <laughs> and it was amazing. A plaster would always sort it out. Even if there was nothing wrong, it would give him the strength he needed to carry on. This king was after a sticky plaster solution. He was after sticky plaster religion. Do you ever find that at work in your life? You know, you're not bothering with God a lot of the time, but then a crisis hits you, and you're like, oh, I'm going to pray about this one. <laughs> or, or, or perhaps you're facing something that's really difficult. Perhaps you lose your job, or, or, or you lose a loved one, or you face a, a really horrific situation, and you think, gosh, God, would you help me? And there can 
and it can feel there's something inauthentic about that. Because you think, oh, this doesn't feel like genuine Christianity, where, where I kind of come to God just when I've got a need. I want you to see something about this passage. That God responds in mercy. What would your response be if you were Elisha? You're there on your deathbed. You're just trying to die, really. You've kind of finished your life. You've had all your words for people. And you're just thinking, God, take me home. And then you've got a king saying, come on, just give me a word. Give me a promise. And you're thinking, you're an idolater. You worship idols. You don't follow the true God. What would your response to him be? I bet you it would be different to Elisha's response. And I tell you what, Elisha shows us the heart of God because he deals with him. He doesn't turn him away. He doesn't say, why didn't you get your act together while you could have done? Why are you coming to me at this late hour? He, he doesn't do that. He gives him a promise from God. And in this room today, I, I dare say there's 100% of us here who are somehow inconsistent in our lives. We have good days with God and there's days where we feel less proud and we feel like, oh, I've just messed that one up a bit. And sometimes we think those things push us away from God. But what we find about the God of the Bible is he's still willing to invite us in, still offering us a promise, still saying, put your trust in me, put your hope in me. God responds to him in mercy. God is gracious, but he's more than just gracious. I think sometimes we think of a God who gives us cuddles when we're down. Do you know what I mean by that? We kind of assume that's God's role in our life. I'm, I'm going through it, God. God, would you help me? Give me a cuddle. Come and help me. Come and make sure that I'm doing okay. And that's good. God does draw close to us. He loves to, to come and comfort us where we need it. But in this story, Elisha's position is this. He's not simply there to comfort the king and give him a slap on the back. He wants to call him out of his sin and into a life of following God. And this is the truth for the Christian, that God hasn't just left you dead in your sins. He didn't just come and pat you on the back and say, well, that's pretty tragic, isn't it? Sad for you, you're going to hell. No, he came and forgave your sins. He dealt with them at the cross and he took your sin into a grave and then he raised you up with new life to follow him in newness of life, going away from your sin. God does love you as you are, but he doesn't want to leave you as you are. He wants to lead you into a new place of following him and a place of wonderful freedom. And you find a Bible full of a gracious God who is gracious with a Peter who denied him three times, with a Thomas who failed to believe him after he rose from the dead, with a Paul who persecuted him. God's merciful with those who doubt. And we're objects of that wonderful mercy. So we're dealing with a king who has lived his life away from God, yet now he's coming to God. And amazingly, God has mercy with him and he gives him a promise. And it's this promise I want to look at for the remainder of our time here. It's a promise to imperfect human beings. That's the kind of people that God deals with. He's not looking for perfection in you before he gives you a promise. And this is the promise that Elisha gave. He said, Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows. Here we go. Take the bow in your hands, he 
he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. This is the promise given to a king who is half-hearted and flip-flopping between idols. When he comes to the true God, the true God says to him, I am going to give you complete victory over your enemies. Isn't that an amazing promise? And this is the prophetic symbol. He says, shoot your arrow out the window. Sorry, balcony. (laughs) And he says, that arrow is the Lord's promise. And that's the promise of victory. As surely as that arrow has been shot, so God will give you victory. Now I want you to respond to that King Joash. And so Joash, and then Elisha leads him in a, in a response. And the response is this. He says, um, right, he says, take your other arrows and I want you to just shoot them at the ground. So I guess his idea is this, that if you've got a promise from God that your enemies are dealt with and God has that one in hand, how many arrows do you need? None. None. If, if God has the arrow and he's given you the arrow, if he's given you the promises, if he's given you the victory already, how many do you need to keep in your quiver? And the king's unsure about this. So Elisha's idea is this. He says, I want you to shoot them at the ground. So he goes out the window and he shoots them at the ground. Oops. And then after three, the king has second thoughts. And he says, yeah, I'm just going to keep a few in my backpack just in case. Just in case the whole God thing doesn't work out for me. I might need a few spare arrows. And Elisha is cross with him, rightly so, because he's doubting. He's doubting the promise of God is going to work in his life. And, do you know, to follow God, to follow Christ, is to trust his promise entirely. And God wants you to trust the arrow of victory, the arrow of salvation, the work of Christ on the cross, the work of his forgiveness for you, the work to secure you and keep you until eternity and into eternity. He's calling you to wholehearted belief in the promise. There was once a missionary called John G. Patton. He was born in Dumfries. And he, lived, he was born in 1824. And uh, it was a time when missionaries were being sent all over the world, and there was this people group in the, in the South Pacific in a cannibalistic island that nobody wanted to go to. Can't understand why. And he went there with his wife and child. It was, a tough, it was a tough thing. His wife and child both died very quickly as soon as they arrived on the island. His life was in danger at various points. He had to flee for his life at times. But he persisted. And there was one time when he was trying to translate the Gospel of John into the native language. They didn't speak any English, so, so he was thinking, how do I convey this? And, and he gets to John chapter 1, verse 12. He's not doing very well. He's in just verse 12 of chapter 1. And he comes across this phrase that says, to those who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. An amazing promise. And he says to the, to the native servant that he's got in the room with, he says, he says what, what is the word for believe? to trust, to to put your faith in. And this uh, kind of cannibal native, he just shrugs his shoulders. He says, well, we don't have that word here. We don't trust. We don't believe. We're cannibals. And so John G. Patton, he's thinking, well, how am I going to translate this word? Because 
Christianity is all about believing God. It's all about faith. And so John G. Patton, he sits on his chair and he says to his servant, he says, what am I doing? And he gives him the word for sitting. And then he did this. He lifted his legs high up in the air. And he said, what am I doing now? And his servant said, he used the phrase to say, you are putting all your weight on the chair. And he used that phrase in his translation of John's gospel for belief, for faith, for trusting. It's to put all your weight on. Let me ask you today, are you putting your full weight on Jesus to take your sins at the cross? Or are you trusting in your own goodness and self-effort? If you're a Christian here today, let me ask you, are you still leaning on him? Christ's victory is final and decisive over your life, but he's calling you to keep believing, to keep trusting, to keep faith. Do you know, this promise takes you beyond this life and beyond death and into eternity. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even though they die. We live in a world where, as Christians, we fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. And all of those things seek to diminish faith and try to make us stop trusting God. Trusting sometimes comes at a high cost. Sometimes it's hard to let go of other things in our life that, that seem more attractive and more weight-bearing than God to us in the immediacy of our situation. Apparently, the surest way to catch a monkey, in, in, uh, if you're a monkey hunter, is to tie a string to a coconut and put a hole in it and put a nut inside the coconut. The monkey comes up and he shakes the coconut, he hears the nut inside, he reaches in with his hand and he grabs the nut, but the hole is just too small to let his clenched fist out with the nut in it. And the monkey hunter just comes in and just reels his string in and catches the monkey. Why? Because the monkey is too stupid to let go of the nut. He thinks, I will not let it go. And here's the thing, as we battle for God's promise in our life and to believe him, sometimes we find ourselves with things in this life and think, I just can't let go of that. And it's not that God has a load of rules that we're, we're trying to make your life difficult, but it's this, that God wants you to genuinely let go of things that stop you following him into his promise. Because actually, the things that we hold on to cost us dearly. Jesus said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Sometimes it means leaving a relationship behind which stops you from following Christ or gets in the way of that. Sometimes it means not taking that job that, that makes you compromise on your faith in Christ or that stops you coming to church meetings. It comes at high cost, but there's also a high reward. And, and Romans 10 says this, amazing scripture that, that before it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God's raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. But then it says this, anyone who believes in him, in Jesus, will never be put to shame. 
Here's the thing. When you put your trust in God, when you put, put your eggs in his basket, it will never be to your discredit. In fact, in this life and in the life to come, I would argue that is true. Because you find in Acts chapter 5, you find that some believers, some apostles, just having been flogged for their faith, it says they went on their way rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering. That's a perplexing reaction, isn't it, when you've just been flogged? Here's the thing, that they're not embarrassed, they're not shamed. They're saying, no, this, this was totally worth it because Jesus is more important. That even when we get into eternity and face Jesus and we look at all the things that we've given our life for, And he says to us, it was totally worth it. When you gave your money, when you could have spent it, when you sacrificially had people round your house week in, week out, and did hospitality, when you might rather have stayed in by yourself, it built something, it did something. You will never be embarrassed in eternity about the things that you did in pursuing God and his promise. And the Bible is full of promises to those who overcome. In fact, you read loads of them in in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And here's the the genre of what does it look like to fight this faith? And it looks often very ordinary. If I was to summarize those first two chapters of, of, of Revelation, it would be this. To him who overcomes. These are promises for people who keep loving Jesus. Let me ask you, are you loving Jesus? To people who keep faithful when things are difficult. To people who keep believing the Bible. To people who keep holding on to God. To people who keep alive in God. To people who keep persevering. And to people who keep following Jesus. And today when you follow that promise, that is enough. And God is enough. I'm going to band if you could just join me for uh, just the last song here. This king had this defining moment in his life where he just made a poor choice and a poor decision. There's two examples of scripture, I think, of where they made an incredible decision that's told to this day. One is, um, maybe just stop playing, all right. Um, One is a a lady who poured perfume over Jesus' feet and everybody said, well, that was wasteful. That was worth a fortune, and it was. And Jesus said, leave her alone. She did the best thing. He says, and this story will be told throughout the world. And to this day, we read that story in the Gospels because of one event in her life that she got so very right after a life that had probably gone very wrong. There's another person who died on a cross next to Jesus. And he was a thief. And he came to a realization on the cross where he he looked at Jesus and he looked at himself and he said, you know what, I'm getting what I deserve here. But Jesus is innocent. And in that moment, he put his faith in Jesus. And he said, Lord, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And in that one moment of his life, having wasted it entirely on nicking stuff from people, in that one moment, he got his decision so very right 
that Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in eternity. Do you know, your life isn't just generic about everything you do every day. It's about decisions that you make. And today I want to invite you to know Jesus. And I want to invite you, if you don't know him, to come to him. And we're just going to sing this song. And if you'd like to come to know him, then I'd love to talk to you afterwards. And perhaps today you need to put your trust in him afresh.